be reading from Genesis chapter 22. Now hear the word of the Lord. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Then Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. God will provide for himself the lamb. These words of Abraham ring down through the centuries with deep significance and hope. Ever since Adam's sin in the garden, mankind has been waiting, waiting for the serpent-crushing seed of the woman who would gain victory over the deceiver. But more than victory over Satan was needed. It had become clear that Adam's sin was not an isolated event. It had borne fruit, the bad kind. Just as the ground had been cursed to bring forth thorns, so the human heart was entangled in the thorns of sin and disobedience. We had inherited from Adam, our first father, a nature that was disobedient to God from the moment of conception. And this disobedience, which we call sin, has resulted in all mankind living in ways which are objectively evil. We lie, we kill, we act in greed and lust, 
We disrespect authority and we dishonor our creator in so many ways. And God is gloriously and altogether perfect, righteous, just, and above all, holy, which means that sinful, disobedient creatures cannot stand in his presence. We couldn't endure it. Anytime we see scripture relating an incident where man is visited by angels, we fall on our face in fear because of the holiness present and attendant on God's angels. God's perfect holiness and righteousness is so opposed to our sinful natures that were we to be in his presence, our sinful hearts would be crushed by the presence of his holiness. His perfect justice demands that our disobedience be punished. And since this sin is against an infinite and almighty perfect being, the sin itself is, in, is infinite as well, and the punishment must be so as well. This leaves us in a terrible situation. We are under condemnation, condemned to die because of our disobedience. What can be done? But we've seen the wrath of God poured out quite literally in the flood and again as he rained down fire from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. But Abraham, we were told, had believed God and that had been counted to him as righteousness. But how are mankind's sins atoned for? How can a righteous and a just God who is holy beyond our comprehension, how can he accept us as righteous? How can we who are sinful be made pure so that we can stand in his presence? What will this promised seed do that makes this possible? Now Isaac, the promised son of Abraham and Sarah, has been born, but Isaac is not the serpent-crushing seed of the woman that had been promised in Genesis 3.15. He will not atone for the sins of mankind. But Abraham is confident because God has promised that through Isaac, God will raise up a great nation. And from that nation, in his perfect timing, God will bring forth the Messiah, the promised Savior. So there is hope, hope in the descendants that will come from Isaac. But now, In Genesis 22, God has instructed Abraham to take Isaac, the son of promise, his only son whom he loves, to go to Moriah and offer his son as a burnt offering on the mountain there. Now, the pagan religions around Abraham had engaged in human sacrifice, but the Lord had never required this before. But we know instinctively that a sheep cannot atone for the sins of a man. A man must atone for a man. But all men are sinful and need atonement. So what was needed was a perfect man, one without sin. That wasn't Isaac. Yet God commands Abraham to sacrifice his beloved son. Would he obey God? Would he give up his beloved son, the son of promise, as the Lord had commanded? Well, the text says that he rose early in the morning. No delay. No hesitation, no arguing with God. He just obeys. He saddles his donkey. He takes firewood with him. No excuses when they get there. 
well, we're here, but there's no wood. No, he took it with him. He took the fire with him so that he could obey. And they set off on a three-day journey. And when they get close, they leave the servants behind. And, and just the father and the son complete the journey up the mountainside. Now, Isaac is a strong young man at this point, so he carries the wood for the fire. And as they ascend up the mountain to the place of sacrifice, Isaac asks an important question in verse 7. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? That's a good question. Abraham then answers with such a statement of faith that, as I said, it rings down through the centuries. Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb. They arrive at the specified location, build an altar, arrange the wood on it. And then it says that Abraham bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Now, we ought to stop and consider at this point both Abraham and Isaac. Isaac is a young man at this point. At the beginning of chapter 23, the next chapter, Isaac will be 37 years old. And we don't know exactly how old he is here in chapter 22, but he's strong enough to carry a big bundle of firewood up a mountain. And don't let the word lad confuse you. It's the same Hebrew word that's used in verses 3 and 5 to refer to the two young servants that they took with them. In fact, it's the same word that was used in chapter 14 to describe the young men of Abraham's household who went to war with him to redeem Lot, to rescue Lot out of the hands of a foreign army. So it doesn't mean a young boy. It can mean a young adult man. And in this case, with Isaac, at this point, he's strong enough to carry the firewood up the mountain. So most commentators agree he's likely between 20 and 30 years old at this point. So what's significant about that age? Well, if Isaac is 20, that means Abraham is 120. If Isaac is 30, then Abraham is 130. Abraham could not have bound Isaac against his will. Isaac submitted to his father, and by extension to God. He willingly allowed himself to be placed on the altar and bound. That is an amazing statement of faith on the part of Isaac to submit himself to this. And then there's Abraham. He's waited 25 years for Isaac to be born, and now he places this promised, long-awaited son on an altar to sacrifice him to God. As a parent, I can't even imagine what pain Abraham must have felt in his heart. And as he raises the knife, at the last second, the angel of the Lord cries out and stops him. It was only a test. Not for God's sake. God knows. God knows the heart. But Abraham didn't. Now he does. Now he knows his own heart. He knows that his faith in God that he trusts God explicitly. What could have been going through his mind at this moment? Well, Scripture tells us, it says in Hebrews, that by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. So Abraham acted in faith believing that God could raise Isaac from the dead because God had promised 
God had promised that Isaac would have descendants who would become a great nation, and that from that nation, one of those descendants would be the promised Messiah, the promised Savior. Abraham trusted God and his power to keep that promise. Afterwards, Abraham sees a ram caught by its horns in the thicket, and he and Isaac offer the ram as a sacrifice, it says, instead of his son, as a substitute, if you will. And the name, he names the mountain Jehovah-Jireh, Yahweh the provider, or the Lord will provide. God then speaks through the angel once more and reaffirms the covenant promises that Abraham will have a multitude of descendants. And then he says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In the New Testament letter to the Galatians, the apostle Paul makes the point, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Christ is the seed spoken of here in Genesis 22, 18. Isaac is not the seed, not the one who had been promised to Adam and Eve in the garden. He's Abraham's son by promise, but he isn't the promised Savior. And so the wait continues. The serpent-crushing seed is still to come. And there's a hint here that he must come as a sacrifice, a substitute like the ram, to atone for the sins of his people. It's not a sacrifice that men may make, but rather it is the lamb provided by God, the perfect sacrifice. All the hints are here in Genesis 22. We see it quite clearly looking backwards at it. Christ is the only begotten son of the father, just as Isaac is called the only begotten son of Abraham. The son whom the father loves, just as Isaac was the only begotten son who Abraham loved. Christ is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He carries the wood of the cross up the same mountain to be sacrificed by the father as a spotless lamb that God provides to atone for the sins of mankind. We see all of this looking back. But from this moment, when this episode occurred in the life of Abraham and Isaac, for almost 2,000 years, until John the Baptist cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Until that cry is heard, God's people are left waiting. Waiting for the promised Savior waiting for God to provide the lamb. 400 years as slaves in Egypt, God finally delivers them. They receive his law. They're constituted as a nation. But because of unbelief, an entire generation is sentenced to death in the wilderness, not to inherit the promised land. And then Moses, the great prophet that God used to lead them out of Egypt, out of slavery, to give them the law, to organize them as a nation, to lead them through the wilderness, Moses dies. Joshua leads them into the promised land, but they don't complete the conquest, and the people of the land remain to trouble them for many generations. God gives them a king, Saul. He's tall, he's handsome, he's rash, and he's foolish. He's not the one. Then comes King David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, He defeats their enemies. He expands the borders of the kingdom. He establishes the capital in Jerusalem. Then he commits adultery and murder. He's not the one. 
His son Solomon is wise. He reigns in splendor and wealth and wisdom, but he gives himself to the pleasures of the flesh, and he's led into idolatry by his many wives. He's not the promised one. His son Rehoboam is foolish and arrogant, and the people reject his rule, and the kingdom is broken. The people of God are at war with one another. Where is the promised seed? When will the one come who will bring peace, defeat the serpent, and redeem his people? Then foreign kings conquer the land, first the northern tribes and then the southern. The people of God are evicted from their inheritance in the promised land. They live in exile in Babylon, and they weep and they cry out, How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Oh, do not remember former iniquities against us. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us, for we have been brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and provide atonement for our sins for your name's sake. So God sends the prophets to speak to the people, to give them hope in the midst of their darkness, to tell of the promised Savior to come. And Isaiah writes, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The Lord will provide the lamb to atone for the sins of his people, to reconcile his people to himself, to establish peace and to bring them to their promised inheritance. The exile is over. God's people return to the promised land, but they're under the authority of foreign kings. The prophets have told them where to look for the coming Lamb of God. By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And then in Micah we read, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are of old from everlasting. He will be prophet, priest, and king. He will speak the truth of God with authority, atone for sin, crush the head of the serpent, establish the kingdom, and bring light into the darkness of the world. But when? When will he come? Can the prophets tell? Silence. 400 years of silence. Nearly 2,000 years since Abraham said those words, the Lord will provide a lamb. The people are waiting in anticipation. Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and now the Romans rule the land. And then a young girl named Mary engaged to wed a carpenter by the name of Joseph, receives a visit from the angel Gabriel 
And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I have not known a man? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. The wait had finally come to an end. The promised Savior was coming into the world just as God had said. He wasn't coming with pomp and circumstance. He wasn't coming into a rich palace. He wasn't going to be born into a wealthy family. He's coming into a humble situation with working-class parents, no palace, not even a proper bedroom in which to be born. His crib would be a sheep's feeding trough. This baby, born in such humble circumstances, was the everlasting, eternally begotten Son of God. And he came to die as a perfect man so that men might live, so that we could be forgiven, made righteous, and restored to fellowship with our Creator. God will provide for himself the Lamb. Almost 2,000 years of anticipation and hope. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The promise hoped for had finally come, and his name was called Jesus. He would offer himself up as a substitute, a perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of mankind. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. This is what he believed. He believed that God would provide for himself a lamb. And if you believe God's promise, as Abraham did, trusting in Christ, the perfect Son of God, rather than in your own efforts, then his birth and his death are for you. Your sins are laid on him and his righteousness is laid on you so that you may stand before your Creator, not with fear and trembling, but with joy and thanksgiving. For God has provided a way of salvation. God has provided the Lamb. Let's pray.